This is episode 171. I'm Tommy Serafinski, and this is Conservation and Science Podcast, where we talk about ecology, conservation, and human-wildlife interactions, which is mainly human-wildlife conflict. I strive to give you diverse perspectives on every environmental story, examining their ecological, social, and increasingly political aspects. Today, we are going to talk about rewilding. I could probably just leave it there. We haven't spoken about rewilding for a while on this podcast, and so I thought it was going to be a good idea to revisit the subject and see where we are right now, whether certain narratives moves on, are they still lingering, and in general, get a refresher on the current state of rewilding. And to do that, our guest today is the director of the Wildland Research Institute at the School of Geography, University of Leeds, Dr. Steve Carver. Steve is also a professor of rewilding and wilderness science. Well, nothing like getting an update on rewilding from the professor of rewilding. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Great to have you on the show. Uh, we spoke at some point on this podcast about rewilding so many times that I was at the point where I said, like, oh, okay, stop. I'm never going to talk about rewilding again. But obviously, <laughs> a few years passed, and I feel like discussion moved on since. So I would like to start with, you know... Rewilding was this term that, and often that was exploited by opponents who say like, oh, who knows what you mean by rewilding? It can mean anything. Anyone can mean whatever they want about rewilding. And yet, here you are, professor of rewilding. So, <laughs> and wilderness science. Don't and wilderness science. So, is rewilding mainstream now? And have we removed all the ambiguity on what rewilding is? Well, it's like anything else, you know, um, you know, whether that's shooting or farming or, you know, traditional conservation, there are so many definitions out there, slightly different words, but, you know, you pare it down and essentially it's, uh, all the definitions really mean the same thing. Um, and that's, I, you know, I like to pare it down to giving nature the space and the time, crucially, to dictate its own uh, ecological trajectories. And that means ecological succession uh, without us interfering too much. Um, and yes, there is this, uh, this problem of a definition, you know, a globally unifying, generally accepted definition. And, you know, that's why um, Ian Combry at uh, University of Cumbria and myself and uh, you know a, a, a group of our colleagues were asked by the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, to try to bottom this out and uh, come up with a unifying definition, which you know is exactly what we've done. We started work in 2017, a uh, big survey of. Um, uh, of, of people we identified uh, through a sort of snowballing exercise as being key informants, uh, early adopters, uh, innovators in the field, and then uh, subsequent surveys of 
rewilding uh, organizations to, to, to identify a set of guiding principles and definition. And, and that's what we've done, you know. Um, so, yeah, we're hoping that's useful and it is being picked up by various organizations and individuals as being, you know, as, as near as damn it, uh, a fall definition. I think that the part of that was like you, you said that even hunting can mean different things to different people. Absolutely. But then the term is around for so long that most people intuitively know what that is, while rewilding is fairly new, right? It's like when it was first, like in the 80s, I think. That was well, the... Well, yeah, people started talking about it in the 80s. It first appeared in print in 1990 in Newsweek magazine, an article by Jennifer Foote. Um, and since then, you know, it's, it's, it's been a term, you know, it, it, um, it first started being used mainly in the USA and North, you know, North America, USA, Canada, um, it's crossed the Atlantic. Um, it's become something different on this side of the Atlantic, I would say, you know, oh, how different, how, how, what was the difference? I'm curious. This is very interesting because that never come up, right? Because or never. originally it was like a wilderness recovery. Exactly. Which my head is is way less contentious, if you like, than rewilding. And then, so what was the change when it crossed the Atlantic? I think you know that uh, on in North America, the uh, impetus was really about connecting up remaining wilderness areas um, using this three C's model. You know, the cars, corridors, and carnivores model. And you know, there are these these, these big uh, transcontinental uh, corridor ideas uh, such as the Yellowstone to Yukon, Y to Y, um, which, you know, based on, you know, we really need to be able to uh, to give wildlife the freedom of movement, you know, whether that's uh, north-south or east-west through these uh, connecting corridors. And, you know, that was the emphasis on, was protecting the cars, existing wilderness areas, you know, with buffer zones and corridors around those, uh, to give species the freedom of movement, and you know, and that was in, that included uh, large carnivores. Bring it over to this side of the Atlantic, and you know, there's precious few remaining wilderness areas left in uh, Europe. You know, there's that we we we've mapped them as part of another project. You know, and, and countries do define and designate um, wilderness areas, but they're nowhere near the scale uh, that we have in that we see in in, in North America. So the emphasis has been really about, um, you know, making space for wild nature within an already heavily modified landscape. And, and, and that has naturally um, involved some watering down of the, uh, the original ecological principles uh, of collectivity, ecological connectivity in, in, that you saw in North America. Yeah, because the density of the population is quite different on on this side of the of the Atlantic. Do you think that this is this was this was part of the negative reaction to rewilding? Well, initial and ongoing to to a large extent. That oh, you mean you know people had in mind these huge landscapes, and then oh, you're gonna you know run people off the land and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I guess there's a certain amount of that, but there's a, there's this issue of hmm, what's the best way to put it? Um, it, it it's about spatial configurations and uh, spatial affordances for wild nature in a heavily modified landscape. So, 
you know, the first time I went to see some rewilding projects, for example, was in the Netherlands. You know, I went on a trip there with Derek Dow that we organized through the Wild Land Network that we set up in uh, 2000 uh, to see, you know, how the Dutch were doing it. And of course, in the Netherlands, you've got, you know, one of Europe's most densely populated countries, and yet they were managing to squeeze in to some of the uh, uh, spaces in between, you know, farmland, population, industry, fitting in these patches of wildness, you know, this, uh, I can't remember what it's called in, the, in Dutch, um, it's this kind of like nature creation, um, which, you know, call, call, call rewilding. Uh, you know, and Ushvarusplasten is the, you know, the key example of that. And of course, one of the problems with doing that is that, you know, there's this need for a fence, you know, to keep wildness separated from um, human land use. Uh, and, and, you know, that's been its downfall in many respects in that, you know, Ispardus Plasen, interesting experiment, but you might say it's a failed experiment because of uh, the, uh, the problems that I've seen in, uh, with, with starving you know, animals in that uh, enclosed landscape because they've simply got nowhere to migrate to. They can't connect to the, to the outside landscape in the lean winter months when, when browse is shot in a natural setting and in the North American setting where there's, you know, there's the, these evolving corridors, you know, wildlife can move, it can migrate. Uh, and of course, in that compartmentalized, fenced in, fenced out landscape that we see in, uh, in the Netherlands there is the wildlife can't. Um, it, it starves uh, when, the, when, the, when, when the fodder of the, the, the browse runs out. What was your, uh, in general, view on this experiment? Because, like, initially, I, I was, uh, I thought it's a failed experiment. It's like the worst thing ever. And then when I started more reading about it, I kind of like warmed up to it and say, like, well, you know, actually, animals die in nature. So if we talk, if we talk about wilderness and wildness, whichever term, we we get to that later. Well, the yeah, animals die like all the time. So why we have? Yeah, no, it's still the fence, isn't it? You know, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an un, it's it's an unnatural situation where you've got you know natural processes of uh, uh, you know life and death going on inside an enclosed area. And uh, yeah, I remember going there and thinking, "Wow, this is great!" You know, uh, and I, I, when was I there? Two thousand five, I think. And I think that's really before the overgrazing really started to show. I mean, you can see it on Google Earth. If you go to Google Earth and you look at Ushvaras Plaza and you use the little time tool to scroll back in time to 2000 and then start scrolling forward, you can see this landscape becoming denuded and all of the trees dying because, you know, in the, in the, in the winter months, of, well, actually early spring is the, the lean month when before the, the, you know, the landscape greens up properly, is... You know, the, well, the horses and the cattle and the deer are busy eating the bark off the trees because that's all they've got. <laughs> Ring bark the tree, the trees die, and you end up with, uh, you know, a, a, a close crop grass sward, you know, landscape with no trees. Yeah, and you know, like um, what what comes to my mind now when you're saying this is that this is not necessarily limited. That that issue is not necessarily limited to rewilding and fences because what comes to my mind is issue with elephants in Botswana. When they're 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 eating their habitat out, there's nothing left, and 
then we have this discussion, oh, we need to call the elephants and, you know, sell their licenses and whatever. And then, oh, but how it was before that they didn't. And like before they crossed the continent yeah. and now yeah. they can't. So now it's kind can't. of similar, I mean, this, isn't it? This is the thing. I mean, even with Botswana, you know, the, the problem is the fence, you know, and it's the veterinary fences in Botswana that are problem is, you know, to, uh, to keep livestock away from wildlife to stop the transmission of uh, uh, rinderpest and and other and other uh, diseases which are present in uh, in in the wildlife reservoir, and of course you know that then interrupts migrationary uh, corridors of uh, elephants and wildebeest and, and and you name it. Uh, so yeah, again, the fence is the problem. Uh, it's, 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 okay, it's the okay. collectivity uh, of the type we were talking about earlier is 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 required to you know, allow those migrations to happen. But yeah, going back to your earlier question about, you know, uh, nature is cruel in tooth and claw, you know, red in tooth and claw. And of course, starvation is is part of uh, part of that uh, natural cycle of life. Um, but when it's artificially controlled within a small fenced area, that's when it starts to feel somehow wrong. Um yeah, the Dutch had this great, and then there was a there was a design for a corridor. I think it was called the the Hosteworld, uh, in between Utrechtsplaatsen uh, and the and the the uh, I'm probably murdering the Dutch pronunciation here, but it sounds uh, perfect to me. <laughs> you just have to say it with a bit of phlegm in your throat. Um, but yeah, there was a, a plan for a connecting corridor, and you know if that would have gone ahead, that would have not necessarily completely solved the problem but would have eased it um it would allow the, the herbivores this this movement into a larger area so yeah i i i, I have my concerns about uh, the ustvardus plaza experiment you know and it's been great for a, as a learning experiment and we now know that you know you simply cannot put large herbivores into such a small area where you can't have a predatory pressure you don't have that connectivity um it's gonna it's gonna lead to you know, environmental degradation, and to some extent, you can say that system collapsed when uh, the, you know, the overgrazing uh, took place, and when the numbers of herbivores grew to beyond the carrying capacity, and then they had to start culling. Look, so I just want to come back a little bit then to where we started, and in the for, to to the definition. So, is rewilding by its nature a landscape change? Because then, you know, the the follow question, follow up question from this is like you have all those things like micro rewilding, right? And then someone puts the pot on the on the uh, on the window and it's like, oh, I rewild, yeah, I rewilded my window or whatever. So <laughs> where where is it, you know, like on the landscape? Are we talk because there's, I guess, important distinctions between changing the landscape and then landscape scale. Rewilding. Did I get that right? There are these two different things? I would like to elaborate on, on yeah, that. I know I mean, it's like I, a compound it's question. It's incredibly scale dependent, and incredibly context specific. Um, it, yeah, I think this idea of rewilding your window box is just uh, just 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 fluff. You know, it's it's nonsense. I mean, yes, you can you can make your window box pollinator friendly. You know, and, and you know, uh, yeah, it proved that. You know, the biodiversity in that micro space. You know, nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, I, I I do no mo may. You know, because a I'm lazy, uh, and and b you know I, you know I think I, you know it's nice to see 
what wildfire was coming from my lawn entirely self-seeded but you know i've got rag robin ragwort and all sorts of things you name it uh, i didn't put them there um but uh yeah I, I wouldn't call that rewilding um you know i think rewilding ha- has to happen at scale uh within a particular landscape unit so yeah um I think maybe when we're talking about smaller patches of land, uh, then, you know, habitat creation, uh, habitat restoration, uh, those kinds of phrases are perhaps more appropriate, you know, because I think the ecological principles of rewilding, you know, really are, you know, I go back to North America, you know, I say they really are tied to that sort of notion of the cause corridors and carnivores model. And if, at the end of the day, a rewilding project or a rewilded landscape isn't moving along that continuum of, uh, of you know, human-dominated landscapes through to wilderness. If it isn't moving a landscape towards that wilderness end of the spectrum, then it's not really achieving its achieving its goals. Mm, yeah, and and by the way, I would like to mention now. I think that there's a graph of this in in the paper that you're yeah, lead absolutely. author yeah, on. It's, it's, it's guiding continuum. Yeah, guiding principles of rewilding. And as always, we're going to link this paper in the show notes. So if anyone wants to go there, it's it's I think uh, kind of like it summarizes that nicely. Um, Steve, I so I think uh-huh. the thing just 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 to pick up on yeah, the yeah. spatial thing, I think the thing to point out as regards that paper, um, and you know what we were doing there was it's it's a, it's a global overview. You know, so this is, uh, and it may be that, you know, I'm sat here in, in Yorkshire, England. Um, it may be that, you know, rewilding, true rewilding at that level, or as I call it, re-open brackets, AL, close brackets, wilding, real wilding, so to speak, uh, might not necessarily be possible um, at the scales uh, that uh, the, the, the British landscape affords. Um, so, yeah, that paper is very much a global uh, set of principles, um, you know, the IUCN being a global organization. Um, so, yeah, I think we just need to uh, be, be, be cognizant of that. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that because um, it might feel like I was trying to catch you on something, but I never tried no, to catch no, my I never tried to catch <laughs> my guest on something. But I want to I want to uh, go to the concept Something that I heard more than once uh, of the, you know, either like we're talking about the capital R rewilding and just rewilding, uh, meaning habitat creation, meaning, you know, like like you said, like, oh, let's let's have a no more may or maybe, you know, let's have a block of forestry that we're going to leave it, something like that. That is not landscape either scale or landscape change. So where I'm going with this, I, I heard opinion voices that you're probably familiar with that the rewilding is fundamentally anti-rural, right? And I was like, why, why would we, why would say such things? And the response I have is like, so because it is fundamentally landscape change, that means that the landscape that is supporting communities, mainly rural communities, has to change to something else, rewild it. Therefore, it cannot support the community, um, which makes sense. Like, if you think about it, it makes sense. Now, this is where I'm coming from. Like, is this ch- landscape change, which doesn't necessarily mean 
that you don't have place for anything else, right? Like like Natura 2000 sites, there are conservation, but other things are allowed there as well. Or like MPAs, it's like MPA, but it's very protected area in certain aspect of it. Certain other aspect of uses are allowed to that. By the way, that's also a controversial thing. So I, I'm 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 curious your response to like okay it's a landscape scale it's a landscape change to something else that then currently isn't supports community therefore at its core it is anti-rural movement. Yeah, I would say that that uh, is a valid concern, um, but at the same time, you know, let's let's pair that back. You know, change the only constant uh, uh, in in landscape is change itself. You know, landscapes are continually evolving. You know, you, you go back, you know, 50, 40, 100 years or whatever, and the landscape will look very different from it does now. So landscapes are constantly evolving. You know, they're a constant change of flux, they're dynamic. And this idea of balance, you know, whether that's ecological balance or, you know, the uh, cultural, social, cultural balance in a, in a landscape is a bit of a, you know, a mis- misnomer, a bit of a red herring. Um, so, you know, change happens. And, you know, we are... In, uh, at the early stages uh, of a global climate and biodiversity crisis. And so change is being forced upon us. And if we are to respond to that change and create more resilient landscapes, then I would say that we have to work uh, closely with nature in terms of nature-based solutions, etc., to mitigate against the worst effects of that, you know, provide a buffer or whatever it is. Again, you know, I come back to that point, you know, that these things are incredibly complex specific. But one of the principles of, you know, we've got 10 principles of rewilding in that guiding principles paper. You know, one of them um, is that, you know, principle six says that rewilding requires local engagement and support. Full stop. Um, you know, so if, if, if communities, uh, you know, rural communities, and not supportive of a rewilding project in their area, then it's not going to happen. Um, and so I, I, I kind of like to think about uh, this as, you know, there are some uh, external forcing mechanisms, climate and biodiversity, not least of which, and there are some external policy mechanisms which are top-down. You know, the government fiscal uh, and uh, environmental support mechanisms, which are top down, uh, which can support that bottom up buy in uh, from local communities. Now, where those two triangles, if you imagine an inverted triangle from the top, that's top down policy and external forcing mechanisms, and your community is your bottom up triangle, where that those two triangles overlap, you've got a diamond in the middle, that's the sweet spot. Now, that's where. You know, you can get that overlap. Uh, you can think about the orb as a, as a Venn diagram as well, if you like. Is that you get that overlap between supporting policy and these external forcing mechanisms, which allow and encourage that bottom-up buy-in. And the wise money, I would say, is really about spotting those opportunities. You know, some forms of traditional land use can continue alongside that, probably around the edge. But spotting the opportunities for uh, new economies and and and, and new uh, well, you know what will become new traditions, supporting uh, wilder landscapes, um, such that you know in 
20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years' time, people are looking back and saying, well, yeah, what, what was all the fuss about? Um, and, you know, I think as long as you've got that bottom-up support, which is supported by top-down policy and fiscal mechanism, you know, that sweet spot in the middle, then I think those are the areas where we may well wish to concentrate on. Uh, and it's about spotting those opportunities, whether they're spatial ecological opportunities or social cultural ones. What part or to what extent work on rewilding or rewilding itself is purely ecological, biological, or to what extent it is also social, political? Because you touch on this very important thing that nothing happens in the vacuum and we might mm-hmm, have mm-hmm. some great... So, in, in you know, is it like almost half of it or is it like 80% of it? I think it's probably half and half. You know, I think... Uh, the ecological principles are uh, first and foremost, uh, you know, a priority um, because if you're you're not ticking those boxes, it's not rewilding um, in an ecological context. But we very much recognise that the socio-cultural, political setting are just as important in terms of enabling and supporting. Uh, the the rewilding process, you know, and it is uh, it is to some extent a process in that re- in that regard. Um, so you know, principle six, as I say, rewilding requires local engagement and, and support. Principle seven says that it's informed by science, traditional science, but also uh, traditional ecological knowledge uh, and other local uh, local inputs or other local knowledges. You know. Principle eight goes on to say about feed, feedback and monitoring, you know, as a as a as a human process. Um, but then, you know, actually, principle nine of that brings it right back to uh, to the beginning and says, well, you know, we re- need, really do need to recognise the intrinsic value of all species and ecosystems here because uh, it's not all just about us here. You know, we are, as I said before, you know, at the beginnings of a big changes ahead in terms of climate and biodiversity crisis. And we just need to have that humility to recognize it ain't all about us. You know, and if we forget that we are part of a wider community of life and not just biotic, but abiotic, you know, those natural processes that, you know, we refer to them as ecosystem services. You know, again, that just says, it's about us. What can we get out of the ecosystem? You know, services to us, you know, gimme, 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 provisioning services, supporting services, regulating services, cultural services. That model's all really about us, but we need to get past that, I think, and say, well, hey, look, you know, we're not the only ones on this planet, but we rely for everything on the stuff that's around us, you know, the, the natural world, uh, you know, be that abiotic or biotic. Um yeah, and if we, if we leave that out of the equation, we're, we're doomed, aren't we? No, that's 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 a very good point regarding the ecosystem services. That you know, like this is uh, kind of like a side thought, but the more I I I think about conservation, even and and other things that we should do, there is like a huge element of like human arrogance in this. Even like you know, you know we got those little diagrams, you know, which has a man at the top of this pyramid and there's, this, there's a woman slightly, slightly down to one side and then there's all the other orders of species in this triangle. Um, I, can't, I, don't, I can't remember who drew it, but it's really, really useful. And then next to it is this, and that's called egocentric, isn't it? You know, it's saying, oh, we're at the top of the pyramid. 
uh, and then there's this next uh, this circle of, of you know different life forms and you know man and woman are in there somewhere in the middle there you know basically holding hands perhaps maybe down to one side then that's called ecocentric and uh, you know it's it's you know just shouting at you that we just really do really need to recognize that we, it's not just all about us and but at the same time with that ecosystem service model you know you can't it's it's useful because you know money does make the world go round uh, and so you know if you're able to demonstrate economic as well as you know sort of ecological value from ecosystem services then it's more likely to get traction you know you can demonstrate to politicians and you know, planners and developers and, and, and um, you know, business people the value of wild nature uh, if you can put you know a, a monetary value on it uh, or some kind of tr- uh, transference of, uh, of, of service I want to uh, kind of again wind back a little bit and maybe switch gears and talk about wilderness versus rewilding sure you know that's 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 in because like in my um you know like i i always say that the rewilding how i like it how how i would you know love it is absolutely terrible thing <laughs> because like it's uh, because to me like rewilding is basically landscape scale and we talk about creation of wilderness but then but then you have these things that you know like if the wilderness is like without people and and kind of like a no people interactions in it and you know i think that was aldo leopold who said that uh wilderness by definition is support to be supposed to be wild therefore not accessible to people but then we talk about tourist opportunities opportunities for all the and and so on and so forth and i myself say like you know if we have this lovely pristine wilderness somewhere just just beautiful but i don't have access to it do i even care I like it. it might be not there. So, so if you can, you unpack this wilderness and the rewilding and all those concepts. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I said earlier, I think you know, if 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 the ultimate goal of rewilding is to create a sort of a secondary wilderness, then you know, if it's not got that as an ultimate goal, and somehow it's it's kind of missing the point. You know, it's it's limited rewilding. But wilderness is, you know, you used the word pristine a minute ago. I, I. Honestly, don't think there is such a place left on the planet. You know, global pollution, climate change, the fact that we're being pretty much everywhere as you know as a race um, has removed that pristine nature from anywhere. I mean, there are one or two places in Antarctica which we know people have never set foot. You know, we've flown over them. You know, and you know you can. If we went there, you could take a sample of ice, and and you know somewhere near the top of that sample of ice, you'd see all of these human signatures from pollution and, and you know carbon dioxide and what have you. So I thought there is no really nowhere left which is pristine, but you know wilderness areas are um, those places that uh, the, the human influence is. Largely, this external, you know, global pollution, etc. Uh, human influence has been minimal. Um, now, there's a big issue there about the role of indigenous traditional cultures in some of these areas. But let's not forget that we haven't been, as a race, as humans, whether we're you know regarded as uh, First Nation people or not. I mean, we're all indigenous to somewhere. 
uh, we are as a as a race the ultimate colonizer. You know, so you can you can there's you know obviously lots of paleontological paleontological you know what I mean uh, evidence that shows you know when we've rocked up in different places we've spread around the globe and in some places that's only been relatively recently you know like the last you know 1200 1300 years I do a lot of work in Iceland we've just this this last couple of days finished a new wilderness map for Iceland uh, Iceland's only been occupied by people for 1300 years. And before then, it was empty. You know, it was it was pristine wilderness. Uh, New Zealand, the same. Um, so you can look around the world and you can see when people rock up, they then start to change the landscape um, through, uh, you know, whether that's biostic culture or whether it's uh, megafauna extinction um, or, you know, ultimately then agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. So whenever we rock up, we change things. And so... Yeah, wilderness as a as a as a concept um, comes with baggage, uh, and that's what makes it interesting um, as a academic study. But you know, ecologically, you know, wilderness is those that that biophysical reality of wild nature doing what wild nature does, largely in the absence of any human interference or influence. Do you so? Do you agree with? I'm going to quote again, Aldo Leopold. Wilderness is a resource which can shrink but not grow. Invasion can be arrested yeah, or not modified. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Well, you know, I think once it's gone, it's gone forever. You can't re- uh, recreate those original conditions. But what you can do is you can through, well, obviously we were talking about rewilding, or you can recreate wild conditions. And, you know, nature reclaims its own with surprising rapidity. Um it might not be the same as what was there before human, in, you know, modification influence, but it will be wild. Um, it will be nature. Um, it, you know, will be whether it's native is another matter. Um, you know, because species we've enabled this uh, movement of species across the world far, far uh, faster and more rapid than they would have done without you know human globalization. But yeah. Um, you leave a patch of land alone long enough and nature will just go, yay, you know, and recolonize it. Um, and that will be natural. It'll be wild. You, you know, and that brings me to uh, one other thing, because one of the narrative when talking about the rewilding uh, from mainly opponents of it was like, oh, you want to bring it back. So where, what year exactly you want to bring it back, and et cetera, right? So... I, I always said like, well, okay, it's 2024 and I would hope that the discussion moved on from that point <laughs> that we, we kind of sorted that out. But then there is like, okay, so to what extent we want to, we want to control that, which, which leads me to question really, is rewilding a form of land management or form of land use and then you know because then you say like okay if we just leave the nature alone right then well some species will go extinct if we not help them right um then i even had an interesting conversation that that came up quite a few times i mentioned that on the podcast recently about wolves and it's like well you know like if you just drop wolves somewhere and they will scavenge on the trash bins and eat fallen livestock then 
they're not exactly fulfilling their ecological function. And then there are people who are like, wahaha, like what is ecological function? If they are now scavenging on the livestock, fallen livestock and trash bins, that is their ecological function. So then my question is like, oh, is this the rewilding we want? So where is that? Well, as I say, you know, coming back to that point, it is incredibly context specific, you know, spatially and temporally. The rebit, I, I've, I've never really been a great fan of rewilding as a term. You know, wilding was suggested, you know, but that's now tainted because of a certain book. Um, nature-led ecosystems, yeah, that's a good one. A friend of friend friend of mine came up with that one. Self-will lands, um, you know, those are. I like I like the original wilderness recovery. I was like wilderness recovery. Yeah, why not? Um, but you know that then implies you know that the ultimate goal is definitely wilderness. You know, and you know I had a conversation not that long ago with some top rewilders in Europe and said, look, we're not about wilderness. You know, we're not about creating wilderness. And I'm like, whoa. So maybe you're missing the point. Um, so yeah, the rebit does to many people imply going back to you know pre-human uh, landscapes. Well, no, it's not about that. It's about a future wild, a future natural. Um, it's it's looking forward to future uh, wild landscapes. You know where uh, they they where they're possible. Um, you know, and I think that is all about you know it's the art of the possible. Um, and you know, bearing in mind all of those spatial and social and cultural restrictions that we have to work with, uh, it will be different in you and it is in North America or South America or wherever you. Know. So I, I think the rebit is 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 a bit of a straw man argument. Oh, that's int- That is very interesting. Do you th- do you think you already kind of like a hinted on that that we probably could do with a better term? Well, no, I think the cat's out of the bag. It's going to be called rewilding. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's still a debate going on about, um, uh, you know, is is rewilding just ecological restoration dressed up in a different, you know, set of clothes, um, metaphorically speaking. And I would say probably not that you could say that all rewilding is restoration, but not all restoration is rewilding. You know, so if again, if you think about a Venn diagram, but then we started thinking about it, and we thought, well, you know, actually, if you think about Ecological restoration, generally speaking, it's using natural processes to achieve a desired endpoint, a desired ecosystem endpoint. Yeah. Wolves and, not and scavenging so, on trash bins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, so you could say, well, ecosystem restoration is human-led, nature-enabled. So it's humans deciding which natural processes to use to achieve a particular desired endpoint. Rewilding is 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 conceptually different in that it's nature-led, human-enabled. So it's us allowing nature the space and the time, going back to that definition, allowing nature the space, the time to determine its own trajectories within that uh, contextual setting. So it's it's about stepping back and, and not... Uh, and as humans, we always have this... You know, desire to manage and to control, and that's that's probably the biggest barrier to rewilding is having that sort of, you know, long view and saying, well, okay, let's just take a step back, shall we? Um, and sometimes that's forced on us. You know, in terms of Europe, uh, um, you know, Chernobyl is the is the classic example. You know, where people were 
uh, had to evacuate that landscape and, um, you know, nature just came on back. You know, passive rewilding, it's called. We're not actively managing it. Um, but, you know, people like to manage and control. So that active rewilding is kind of more towards the ecological restoration end in that we're, um, you know, it might be just initial uh, management interventions to allow uh, natural processes uh, to then take over and you know, control uh, succession. But no, but that makes it that makes sense, and 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 I think like this this is like when you have a landscape again depends on the you know level to which it was degraded or deteriorated or whatever uh, term you want to use. It's like okay, we don't want to lose these ground nesting birds so we need to manage that up to the point when they're not gonna be wiped out and then we can gradually you know be hands-on more and more which brings me to the point that at the end of the day rewilding is a form of land management land use at least in the, in the beginning yeah it's yeah it's it's hmm. Land use, but, but, uh, yeah. Do you know I, I want to go? Yeah, I want to go fishing. How do you describe natural succession as a land use? You yes. know, it's uh, yeah, it is about change, though, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, let, let's yeah, let's not forget that um, there's these international policy um, directives. So you know, the Convention on Biodiversity and the Global Biodiversity Forum. Put wilderness protection as uh, as their first priority in the list of twenty one. You know, if you want to protect biodiversity, um, then protect our wilderness areas. You know, that's the first priority. And then we saw in the uh, COP fifteen Kunming Montreal Agreement, you know, targets one, two, and three are about protecting core areas um, and uh, restoring deg degraded lands. You know, we, we say, you know, we, we need to restore 30% of our degraded lands, protect 30% of our land, sea, and water for, for, for wild nature, for biodiversity. Target number one was interesting. It said we, we need to do that in a participatory way so that people are involved, you know, back to our principle number six in the paper. So, you know, these, um, all of these things that we're talking about sit within these global, uh, these, these global conventions and frameworks. But uh, whether that drives it forward or, or not, I don't know. I hope so. Yeah. As a, I think that before this episode, uh, there is a one episode when we talk about the EU Biodiversity Strategy 2030, which is part of like, okay, there is a lot of politics and a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of a lot of a lot of things so I don't, i'm not sure when this episode is going to be published for the listeners but probably the one before that this is the one that i'm talking about um steve i gotta ask you a question on, on your view on species reintroductions um and because quite often species reintroductions are treated as synonymous with rewilding or, or even like every rewilding should have an element of species reintroduction. I don't think so. You know, um, it's a key element. You know, species reintroductions or translocations or uh, whatever you want to call them. Um, it's a key element, but it's not a mandatory element. Um, you know, rewilding doesn't have to involve reintrodu reintroduction of any species. You know, it can just be, you know, passive rewilding doesn't involve uh, intentional reintroductions. It's just, you know, uh, you know, giving nature the space and the time again, you know, Natura Naturans, you know, 
nature does what nature, you know, nature does what nature does. Yeah, there is that temptation to think, oh, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful to have lynx and wolves and bear back in the UK? Um, personally, I'm hopeful about lynx in my lifetime. I'd like to see that happen before I'm pushing up the daisies. Um, but uh, I am under no illusions as to the fact that wolves are not going to be here in my lifetime. Um, maybe in future, I don't know. Um, but, you know, in the UK context, you know, we are the only major European island along with uh, along with Ireland um, that doesn't have a breeding wolf population. Um, Iceland doesn't, but you know, wolves never do that anyway. Um, but yeah, the UK and, and Ireland, the only major European countries without a breeding wolf population. And the clues to the name, you know, the fact that we are islands, the fact that we would have to consciously make that decision to reintroduce them um, is a, a real sticking point. You know, if they come back on their own, then that's a different if matter. They just, if they only swam better. That's right. They just they kind of took some swimming lessons, yeah, you know, yeah. or stayed away, you know, on the, on the Eurostar. Or, yeah. Hey, I'd buy him a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. Listen, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, and the, and the one thing that I'm getting from this conversation is, like you said, it's, it's very specific to you know, local specificity context, like you say, what is the, yeah, what we, exactly. what we like, um, there's no one size fits all. Mm. I have a one big question, like a bigger question as, as well for you. Um, I would like to hear your comments on, you know, certain, let's say farming practices that are labeled rewilding. They're even, they're even like, I, I'm talking about NEP, for example. You know, it, it is, it is, but there's, there's more, obviously it's been great success, uh, both from the PR perspective, as well as financially, as I understand, as well as just be there and, and enjoy it. So, and then that is like a big rewilding project. And I, I love every bit of it. Uh, maybe not every, but a lot of it. Uh, but then, you know, this, this moment of done is like, like, this is just a, just a maybe modern farming. This is this way of farming rather than rewilding so i'm i'm curious like do you think i'm wrong on this do you have yeah what's your take well, on that I think you're, you're pretty on on the money there literally um yeah i'd say i'd, I'd say net is uh i mean it's, it's it's don't get me wrong again you know it's great for biodiversity uh it's demonstrated that there are different ways of using land uh which will you know generate income uh, as well as generate space for nature, but I wouldn't call it rewilding. Rewilding light, I think, is 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 uh, a phrase I coined in, a, in an article for Ecos magazine a few years ago now, uh, which I applied to to, to NEP. But even Charlie and Izzy themselves have, have admitted that what they're doing is regenerative agriculture. Um, you know, and I, I think that's great. You know, that's if uh, that's what it is. But I wouldn't call it. Rewilding. What would need to change to call it rewilding? Uh, stop farming, because if it's farming, it ain't rewilding. Mm -hmm. What about tourists? I think the tourism element is fine. I'm just a bit suspicious that you know, if it's uh, you know, big animals behind fences for people to gawp at, then then that's what I would call safari park rewilding. Um, so you know, like the bison reintroduction, reintroduction, uh, the bison project at Wild Wild Blean, it's 
it's demonstrating their ecological impact on a piece of woodland, probably a bit too high a density but for the size of the woodland, but it's uh, it's it's a safari park type approach. And, you know, if people get inspired by that and, and enjoy the spectacle, um, you know, which promotes that. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the animals without the freedom to move, um, again, you know, we're coming back to his father's flowers and, um, you know, and uh, Franz Baer is one of the advisors for the NET project. In other words, fences are the biggest differentiator. Yeah, no, it is. You know, uh, Ian and I wrote an article for British Wildlife magazine on, on fences and rewilding and whether that's fencing in or fencing out, you know, be that livestock or wild animals or, or what, you know, I think the fence is uh, a tricky one. And, you know, we're going back right to the beginning of our conversation about um, coles corridors and carnivals in North America and to what extent we can apply that in Europe is very, very limited by, you know, patterns of human land use and the fact that our landscapes are compartmentalized by fences. You know, there's a, there's a, a poem by Robert Frost, which I quite often quote, which says, good fences, good make, make good neighbors. It's called a poem called Mending Wall. And it has that phrase in it. And, you know, and from a human perspective, that is so true. You know, good fences do make good neighbors. We know where we are. Uh, we know where our neighbor is, but for animals, it's like, whoa, you know, the, the fence is a problem. I mean, there are metaphorical fences in wild nature in terms of, you know, physical barriers and, uh, and, um, behavioral barriers, you know, landscapes of fear, etc. but a you know, hard, thin, physical, artificial barrier, like a fence really creates problems. That is that is excellent, and I like how we came, you know, made the full circle to the beginning of it. So I think it's a good moment to wrap it up. I will I will uh, leave uh, with the question: What do you think? What is the future for rewilding? If you're if you, you know, look at the crystal ball in the, you know twenty fifty hundred years of time, how do you see this concept developing and 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 going forward or backward? I think if we're still here. We'll be looking back on this period and going, hey, what was all the fuss about? You know, rewilding will be just part of the zeitgeist. You know, it'll be a, a, a tool in the uh, uh, in the environmental conservation ecological toolbox. But, you know, maybe the toolbox isn't a right expression. It isn't really a management tool. You know, it's, it's kind of the opposite. It's about, it's a, it's a, it's a nature, it's a natural tool. Um, so I think we'll just look back and say, hey, what was all the fuss about? Um, but it won't be, it's not a universal approach. You know, you can't rewild everywhere. We can make things a little bit wilder. We're going to go back to our example about no more may and window boxes and indeed net regenerative farming. It's all making things a little bit wilder. But rewilding um, has to happen at landscape scale um, and it will be only appropriate in certain conditions. Perfect. Steve, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's been good. Cheers, Tommy. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 